Welcome back to Trial Trends, a monthly podcast brought to you by 4G Clinical, where we tackle big ideas, challenge the status quo, and bring new perspectives to the rapidly changing world of clinical trials. Get ready to disrupt the old ways of thinking and discover the newest trial trends. The evolution of clinical trials has not been synonymous with the word simple. In the modern world of life sciences, clinical trials have hugely evolved and continue to rise in complexity. Whether it's the IMP and treatments themselves, the way they are administered, supply management algorithms, or the actual protocol designs. The list goes on. Throughout the years, the rising complexity has been matched with advancements in technology to help quell its takeover. In today's episode, we will explore the evolution of randomization technologies and how modern RTSM systems have developed to help address the high degree of complexity found in today's clinical trials. Today, we are lucky enough to have Simon West Bulford as our guest. Simon, who is a director of test automation at 4G Clinical, has over 33 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry, 20 of which has been focused on interactive response technologies. I cannot imagine a better guest to discuss today's topic with. Good morning, Simon. Welcome to Trial Trends. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Libby. Wow. So 30 years in the business and 20 in IRT. The first thing we should probably clear off our plate is what is IRT? What does it mean? Where does it come from? What is it? Yeah, well, IRT, I mean, it's a very generalized term. I mean, it means interactive response technology. So it's used in other industries as well. But in terms of how we see it, with how we use IRT and the acronym in general, you know, we obviously refer to ourselves as using supporting RTSM, which is randomization and trial supply management. But IRT, interactive response technology, in its earliest years, when I first started out in this business, it was IVR. So interactive voice response is what that is. And so, you know, Early on, when I first started it, as you said, that was uh, over 30 years ago now, it was purely just over the phone. So they'd start with their system, they'd call up on the phone, dial up to register their patients and use the, the system that way. And then it expanded out into IRT and RTSM beyond that. There are other acronyms as well, which I can't remember off the top of my head now, but yeah, there's quite a few. So when you first started, IRT as we know it today, as a web-based function, of course, the web yeah. really not existent. I can't even ask what it looked like. This is something you said over the phone, people called in and what would happen? That patient was dosed. And then what was kind of the course of events that took place thereafter? Yeah. Well, I mean, the system itself was, just, it was basically just a computer that just sat in the, in a back room somewhere that linked to a database and they would, they would connect to that database via the phone. I don't understand the technological parts of that, but that's, that's basically what it was. There was a lot of manual stuff still going on. And the system that we started out was a bit, I suppose you could say it was a bit like a startup when I was at GSK when they started doing it. So I went into that team. There were about three or four of us, just a few handful of studies at the start. It was meant to be in those early days, we would set the study up in there and we would support it right right the way through to its closure. So that meant that Anyone who was involved in that study was basically working the help desk, configuring it, updating it, do the amendments, all of that stuff. So if it was just a computer sitting in the back room, you know, and it went down, then halfway through in the middle of the night, you'd be getting help desk calls from Thailand, all different places, uh, trying to understand how to fix it. So yeah, it was a uh, very basic technology in those days. Very basic in those days, but 
probably took a while to adopt. What was the adoption process like? And really, what types of trials could be supported by this technology? Where did the trust come from at first? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because in terms of trust, I guess they were so used to a paper-based system back then. And even today, I guess, we're still seeing the legacy of that. I mean, randomization lists are are basically a a souped-up version of that. And the technology now can support things like minimization, randomization, that you're just allowing the algorithms to tell you how to randomize. But we still use a lot of randomization lists. So it's that industry feeling that if it isn't broke, don't try and fix it. And, you know, that there's probably concerns over if you try something new, are you going to break the study? You know, these are very expensive things and a lot of people depend on them. So it's hard for that change to come through. And I suppose that in the, again, in in those early days, it was a slow adoption, I think. You know, there were just a handful of studies at the start and the types of studies that we were doing, again, very simple ones, the system itself was quite robust. It could handle quite a few different things, but it, it was just your, your straightforward two treatment arms, you know, simple co-breaks and no flash things like cohorts and sub-studies, that kind of thing. So it was all quite simple back then. So moving from paper to, I mean, tech, we think of ourselves, you know, our phones, online banking. I mean, even that adoption, we mm. all had our own we're both dating ourselves at this point, right? But the adoption of that and the trust within a system, how within this space, what were the big drivers behind what took us from the paper-based to the more techie side of things? And because we have you here today and you have such a rich repertoire and history within the space, where did you find yourself within? I know that you were the designer and developer of Spark 5, which was a supply optimization tool during your time at GSK. Can you tell us more about that? That was the area that I really zoned in on, I think, because, again, simple studies back then and simple simple supply, the way that they managed it, it was just straightforward one-to-one resupply. So you'd send a, a huge amount of stock to the site, well, not necessarily a huge amount, but you'd send some stock to the site, and when they used one, you just replaced it. And it became apparent a little bit later on, that this was really a a wasteful way of doing it and not very good for the patient at the end of the day because you could get stockouts that way. If you get a a site that was particularly good at recruiting and they just used up all that stock and you couldn't get get it there in time, obviously you've got that problem. But then if you try and overcompensate and send too much, then that's just wasteful. So that was what I really zoned in on. And we started using some very complicated spreadsheets to do all that work, all of that out, you know, lots of pivot tables. And it was complicated to me back then anyway. <laughs> so try to work all, all through that. And that became very unwieldy. So I got to a point of thinking there must be a, a way, a simpler way of doing this, a better way of doing this, a more automated way of doing it, if you like. And I'm a bit of a, an armchair developer. So I like to dabble with a bit of code. So I went home, thought I'm going to have a try at building some kind of supply tool. Um, that's where Spark 5 was born, really. And, and I think they saw the merit in it. And we just got it validated. It put it through its paces, tested it, and started to roll that out. So that was for what we were using it for was the birth of more complicated, in the background anyway, more complicated um, means of supply management. So you could actually start to look at the database and say, right, what do we think they're going to randomize to? How, how can we supply this in a more cost-effective manner and more timely manner. So yeah, that's where that came from. That's where I zoned in on. 
So I have two questions for you now. One, going back to the adopters, it sounds like the supply group at GSK was really the group that was ready to kind of innovate and develop technology to help with the pain points they had. Is that something that you saw kind of true throughout the entire clinical trial landscape? Or was that just something that you saw at at GSK? Is that where the adoption originally happened? Yeah, well, I was very closed in at GSK, so that's <laughs> I only I only really saw much of what we did there. We did outsource some stuff, but I I rarely saw what we outsourced. So I was very focused on the studies that we were we were dealing with. But it wasn't just the supply piece. That's the that's the area that I really liked and, and wanted mm-hmm. to enhance. But there are other areas to that as well. I mean, the broader picture of supply planning, how they what they're going to package at the start of it was was interesting because. They wanted to use my tool to plan for that. And we had kind of had to educate people into understanding that you can't use a very focused tool like that on something with the, the bigger picture. So there was other project management tools that we were looking at as well, to, the way to organize the studies, that sort of thing. So, yeah, various other technology that was starting to come together. And again, I think people started to realize you needed a more holistic solution, something broader that that covers the whole base, not just individual things in silos, really. Mm -hmm. That was actually my second question is, well, you definitely seem like pioneers, of course. My second question was going to be industry adoption, not of your solution, but when you started seeing vendors pop up with these types of solution, probably with different scope within the feature set, what did you think? Did you end up adopting? Did you end up adapting? What happened then? Yeah, I I think it's interesting because we started to see more complex studies and more complex designs coming along. And I think there was this push to think, can Ramos really support these? Do we need to start looking outwards to find another solution? And that's when we started to look around to see what we could find. And a few tools came up and we were trying these out. But it was these tools that that have a better way of configuring an easier, simpler front-end design, I guess, that helped us there. And that technology using the browsers, because I think Ramos really didn't, well, it was browsers involved, but it was just for the reports. Whereas the, the actual configuration of it was not something that we, that we used in a browser, but the ones that were coming from these other companies did. So that made it a lot easier to work with. Consequently, I think that's where the people basically designing these studies were looking at this stuff and thinking, oh, you can do that now. How about we can do this? And can you do things like uh, have a patient that's randomized twice at the same time? All that kind of thing. And and that really pushed the technology. So it was a bit of a a bit of an evolution in that way. We pushed them a little bit, they pushed back with innovations as well. And it would gradually step up that way. It's not just a simple case of the studies becoming more complex. I think innovations in technology have allowed them the option to make the studies more complex. And I think that's it's pushed things along that way. Supply and demand and a symbiotic innovation push yeah. on both ends, it sounds like. Yeah, that's, that's really pretty much what it is, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is incredible hearing this history, of course, and looking at the past. So if you were to compare what Ramos and Trident were able to do, what are the key differences between those systems? I mean, you've described the difference between the two, but comparing to what's available now, 
what are the big differences that you see and where did that push really take us to at this point? Well, that's really why what convinced me to join 4G. I was very settled where I was, enjoying myself, but 4G came along and they've got this system that can take a specification and turn it into a study. So that to me was a a breakthrough. That was a big move forward to be able to have that natural language processing that, that could take a document and configure a study based on that. That was pretty interesting to see that. And I think there's lots of innovations like that that we're starting to see now or starting to see the need for. You know, I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of things coming out with studies now and, and the medical industry in general that makes you think, what are things going to look like in the future? How is our technology going to cope with that? You know, things like personalized medication, things like the more recent thing we had, direct to patient. I mean, that kind of model, that kind of approach to the supply chain is something that requires, does require a level of innovation that we've not seen before, I think. So it is interesting to think about where all that's going to head and what we need to do in the future to cover that kind of thing. You stole one of my questions, actually, which is great because this is an angle that I really wanted us to talk about in that the demand for flexibility, really technology has, was really pushing things along. And I think that it, it did pave the way for trials to be more complex and really the choice to choose between different options. But when it comes to the decentralization of trials and what we're seeing and what's being demanded upon us, the vendor, for demand and flexibility, what do you see from your position in terms of testing and validation that really is different when you're talking about building in this degree of flexibility that we probably haven't seen in the past? Yeah, it presents a few challenges, actually, because the degree of configuration and the complexity of that to support that kind of innovation is something that is actually quite hard to test. I just spent three years in the the study testing side And if it's one thing you do see is that the amount of different types of studies out there, the different types of ideas that are coming out, it's very difficult to get something very standardized in terms of how you test it. There's different things there to consider. But one of the things that's really driving us, I think, is the speed. That was one of the key mission statements, I think, of of 4G at the start was, you know, we can get clinical trials out faster and we can build them faster. But that also means we need to test them faster as well. So we need to see technological innovation there too. You know, we need to be able to embrace more automation, I would say. And that that is an area that that's the role I've moved more to into recently now. I wanted to jump at that chance to get involved in that a little bit more. How can we speed up the testing without compromising quality? Because obviously that's a massive thing there. And, and And I think that's one of the things that technology has enabled us to do is be more quality conscious. When everything's manual, when you're configuring a lot of things manually, when you're testing a lot of things manually, there is opportunity for error there. And it's slower. You use the technology to automate this kind of thing. You can get a, a much safer way of, of testing. You can get a much faster way of testing. Our technology now, it does seem to be geared around generally just even outside of clinical trials, you know, there's a technology is looking at making things more convenient more understandable, more easy to use. You know, we're no exception to that. You know, we've got to get things out done quickly. Everything's happening at pace. And uh, and that's significant. You know, you've got to find a way to keep up with that. And I think that automation is one of the areas that 
will help us there. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of our previous episodes, we had a conversation about the speed of trials. Can we speed them up? What does it mean that they're becoming more complex? Does that mean that they're going to go through the entire phase approach faster? Or is this something where more data is needed? And so what you're describing and being right in the middle of that, being able to provide the support to get more data, therefore producing faster, safer approaches to these trials is just, it's incredible. It's very important. The collection of data is an interesting one, actually, because that was something towards the end of my time at GSK, what I was interested in was how can we learn from the data that we've got? You know, the historical data, we start to amass a lot of information now. And I think it's, it's important to learn from that. How can we use that data to work out what the trends are? How can we use that data to build models that will support studies that follow a similar approach? You could break it down into different indications, that kind of thing, different types of design. But ultimately, that's another way I see the technology going is how can we better make use of our metrics and data to support the newer studies? Absolutely. (laughs) When you figure it out, let us know. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing, slightly switching gears, I guess, but what if we didn't have a fully configurable software platform and system in general for RTSM? What do you think the pandemic and the studies that we supported throughout would have looked like? Would the response have been the same? Yeah, I, I can't imagine what it would be like without the technology that we've got now. I mean, I think, you know, We're a fairly resilient and versatile species. I think we'd have probably made our way through it, but it would have been slow, very costly. You'd have needed a lot of of real experts in there to to help us through it. But yeah, those are the things that come to mind is it it would just be slow. If you didn't have that kind of technology, the alternative is you're doing everything on on paper. How are you going to do that? You know, I mean, how are you going to do that quickly? When we first started to see movement in, in the pandemic and we're thinking about how we're going to cope with that. Again, one of the big important things there was speed. We've got to do this thing quickly. People need answers. People need to feel safe. You know, people need to feel supported. How are you going to do these studies at a faster rate? You know, so technology was definitely key there. And I think, you know, we we were able to move pretty quickly where that was concerned. We wouldn't have been able to do that without (laughs) without technology for sure. And moving into the future. What do you think the next big ticket items will be in terms of innovation and where we're looking to go, you're looking to go? What, what do you think's next? Oh, well, I've already mentioned automation. I mean, automation is the, is the big on my thing at the moment is what I want to get into. But in terms of, of the trials and, and the trends that are kind of coming our way, I've been thinking about the, the whole thing with personalized medication and what that might look like. That's really interesting because... The medical industry in general seems to be thinking about how we can tailor medication to individuals uh, and and how's that going to affect us? Because I'm just thinking, you know, how, how are we going to support that? Because you're going to end up with every patient is almost like on their own little trial. They're going to have their own, maybe have, they have their own specific medication kits. So you're not just yeah. dealing with your standard five kit types. You, you could be dealing with thousands. So how do you deal with that? And then they could be on their a completely separate visit schedule to another patient. So there's all sorts of things like that. What does it do to the supply chain? 
we've already talked about the decentralization of clinical trials, and that's something we've had to deal with recently in, in, in how we do that. But uh, there are other fantastic things that just sound like science fiction at the moment. And you just think, well, yeah, it's probably coming. You know, things like I love to ask people in the industry about nanotechnology. How are we going to use that? I mean, the, the, the cell and gene therapy things, modifying cells to act like little robots inside your body. I mean, it sounds like science fiction, but basically that sort of stuff is happening. They're starting to do it. So how we adapt our technology to manage that is probably something that we would need to start thinking about more deeply too. Yeah. No, I love it. It's interesting because things are truly moving much faster than we've seen in our history in that science is really pushing the need for tech to innovate and evolve to support the science. But at the same time, the expectations are growing exponentially because you know what is available in terms of the studies going on. Why can't I have this gold standard of care? This is the patients, we as a public know that this type of, well, medical treatments in general are going to be very different. And we know we're at the forefront. So it's, let's see where we are able to engage in terms of supply management. That's going to be a huge one. It's completely different. We're at the forefront of really a new era of medicine. So I couldn't agree more. It's, it's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, it really will. Well, Simon, talking to you today has been an absolute pleasure. And I thank you for joining us today on Trial Trends. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you, Libby. Thank you for joining this episode of Trial Trends. If you enjoyed this discussion, then make sure to subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcast platform or on 4gclinical.com. Until next time, we're your hosts, Kathleen Greeno and Libby Rickenbacker.